So if you would, please turn with me and your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, near you uh, in the bottom of one of the chairs. Let's pray. Father, we love Your Word. And we're delighted week by week to gather as the body of Christ and to study it, Lord. You have told us that we are to worship You with our hearts and with our minds, with our souls, with all of our strength. And so that is our desire today, Father, that as we get into the Word that You would minister to our minds and to our hearts. That we don't, we don't turn our minds off, uh, Lord, we, we turn them on and we want to learn. We want to know more about You. We want to try to understand You in a, in a deeper way. And that too is worship, God. We praise You and we thank You that You have delivered Your Word to us. You have preserved Your Word and here we are, we have it. Thank You for giving us Your Holy Spirit and by Your Spirit we are able to understand the things that are, are in the Bible and we pray for greater understanding because so much of this is still very challenging to our human minds. And so, would You by Your Holy Spirit today, God, help us to, uh, to go deeper into Your Word. And would You bless and encourage every heart in this room. It's not just an intellectual pursuit, God. It, it ought to go from our heads to our hearts. And it ought to stir us to a greater love and affection and devotion for You. And then ultimately work its way out through our hands, that we would serve You and that we would serve one another. Having this understanding of You that has penetrated our minds and hearts. And Lord, may our actions uh, demonstrate that as well. So we thank You, God, and we bless Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright. So Romans chapter 9. Um, let me just say that this is a very controversial chapter in the New Testament. Uh, one of the most controversial. And there are so many differences of opinions and interpretations uh, regarding this chapter and the content in the chapter. What we're kind of dealing with here, simply put, is God's sovereign election. God's divine election. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to that. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as unconditional election. And so... Let me just say that today there's going to be a little bit of um, theological verbiage that I'm, that I'm uh, using. I try to keep that uh, to a minimum. Uh, this is not a, a seminary class. This is a church service. But some of these things are helpful. And for some of us in this room, this may be the first time you've ever even heard any of this. There's a huge debate that has been going on in the church for thousands of years. And uh, maybe up to this point you have heard nothing of it. Uh, for some people you may be familiar with it and just not really concerned. And we may have people in here who have drawn battle lines and have really pulled your sword on this issue. And uh, it, it has. It has been a very inflammatory debate for a long time. And I actually was prepared to, to get into that and teach through kind of the history and the theology of this whole debate. Uh, sometimes people refer to it as Calvinism and Arminianism. Maybe, maybe you've heard of those terms. And so um, it's something I would still like to do, honestly. Um, I think it would really appeal to our, our history buffs in here and our, our 
theology students. I just don't know how many of those we actually have. And so I worry that uh, there would be a handful of people that are like riveted and then the rest are like sleeping. And so um, at any rate, that's something. Maybe after the service, you guys can come up to me and, and let me know what you think. And uh, I'd, I'd love to share that message uh, sometime. And that would be great. So as I said, dealing with God's election, um, people look at it in different ways. Some people think that election means, really obviously it carries the idea of God's choosing. Uh, very m- much like how we elect people into, into offices and, and, and government and so on and so forth. So God has, has elected us, elected the church, chosen us if you will. And people have different views on what that actually means. And some would say, well, it's kind of like God's foreknowledge. He, he already knows all things, and he already knows who would choose him if given the opportunity to do so, and so he chooses them first. Uh, he elects them in, in that case, and some people, that is totally how they see that. Um, others say, no, God chose who he would choose to salvation because man really had no ability to choose God on his own. Um, they put a lot of stock in the fact that outside of God intervening in our lives, that we would never choose God because we're, we're not even able to. We're, we're totally dead in sin, not able to respond um, outside of God really initiating first. And so that's kind of the, the, the two extremes. And I've, I've even heard one person say they had heard it like this, God votes for you, Satan votes against you, and you cast the deciding vote. And that's, you know, obviously that, I think that's... Um, a little more humorous. I, I definitely don't um, don't believe that in any sense. But I just say that to say people have all kinds of thoughts and ideas about how this all works out. And so I would also uh, share with you a couple more terms. Uh, you could narrow this down even more to monergism or synergism. And maybe you've heard that before, maybe not. But the idea of monergism is that God is the one who is doing it from beginning to end. God predestined you, God calls you, He regenerates you, He glorifies you, and you had really nothing to do with it. It was a, a work solely of God, 100% God. That's monergism. Then there's synergism, which says it was a cooperative effort, that God reveals Himself to you, He will convict you of your sin and reveal Himself through the Gospel, but you have to decide whether you're going to repent, whether you're going to put your trust and your faith in that, so then it's a cooperative effort. God reaches out, but then you have a responsibility to reach out or reject that. And so I would say that um, Calvary Chapel leans more to that that end. That's that's kind of the idea I think that Calvary Chapel most often puts forth. We we remain neutral in this whole debate. Uh, we don't want to be polarized or or choose one side or the other. We don't claim to be Calvinist or Arminian. Um, we recognize that there's some kind of mystery there. And so that, uh, it's, it's, again, I'm sorry, I'm really hitting you guys with a lot of these words right out the gate, but the whole message won't be that way. It's an antinomy. There are many of those in the Scriptures, and those are ideas that seem to be contradictory, but they're not. They tie together in some glorious way that, that our minds just can't fully understand, but we recognize that they're both clearly taught in the Scriptures, and somehow they marry together. We just talked about one of those a couple of weeks ago, with the Incarnation, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. 
Both of those are clearly presented in the Scriptures and it's hard for us to understand how that works together. You look at the Bible itself. It's inspired by God but written by men. You look at the Trinity. One God and three persons. They're not three distinct gods. And that is hard for us. We get mental, spiritual brain freeze trying to figure out how those things uh, go together. But we just know that in the Scriptures, they do. Um, and so we, we understand that that's just kind of the way that it is. And we don't uh, wrestle with it, we just rest in it. And so the idea that God is sovereign, God is in control, but somehow man has responsibility. Man has, has uh, free will, you, you can say, and, and people, that's really the debate. Does man really have free will? Is man really able, by his own ability, to respond to the things of God um, and so, again, this is all part of the debate. It's been going on for 2,000 years. I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer. We're not going to answer this today or ever, in fact. And there are plenty of people out there who do believe that they have the answer and they have it packaged in a nice, neat little system. But I think, by and large, the reason why this debate rages to this very day is because we just don't have all the answers. And I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that? We have to kind of be okay with that. And recognizing that this is not an essential issue. This is not a gospel salvation issue. And so we can differ on these things. If you're saved here today and you believe that's because God just got you and brought you in and you really had no part to play in that, or you believe that you absolutely had something to play in that and that you responded, then either way, you're saved. You know, And so I, I just think that it's not something that we have to make into a huge issue. Um, but nonetheless, as I said, this is in this particular chapter a huge topic and it's explicit. And Paul talks about it at great length. And this is it's difficult. People really squirm when they hear some of the language that we hear in this, in this chapter. And the reality is, is as a Bible teacher, I, I answer to God and I have to teach the Word exactly for what it is and what it says. I am not here to please men, I'm here to please Christ. Galatians 1.10 talks about that very thing. If I existed to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And so I have an obligation to just teach the Word and let it say, say what it says. And, um, and that just that's where it is. And this is not a hobby horse for me in the pulpit. I only have one real hobby horse in the pulpit, and that is preaching the Gospel. That's something I want to do every single week. But, you know, part of the Calvary Chapel philosophy is we teach through the whole Bible. And so it forces us to deal with issues that we might not normally want to deal with. And it also keeps us from just planting on one thing and talking about it all the time because we teach it and then we move on to the next thing. And so I have been dealing with this issue pretty extensively for the last couple of weeks because this is where we're at and in uh, the Bible. And so Romans, John chapter 6, Ephesians 1, these are places where they really deal with this issue um, at length. But you know, once we pass on through this, it's on to the next thing. And so I just don't want to uh, cause an unnecessary battle to, to break out or, or anything over these issues. But I love to talk about these things and, and study these things outside the pulpit. And so anybody who is up for a good theological conversation uh, love to love to get with you out, outside of the service and, and discuss these things. So, all right, just wanted to kind of frame it with that. <clears throat> so dealing with Romans itself, 
I have always assumed that Romans was uh, really written predominantly to Gentiles by uh, the very fact that it's to the Christians in Rome. But as I've been teaching through it, this time I've, I've begun to realize that this is a very Jewish book. I mean, Paul is addressing the Jews over and over again. And he uses language that would be crystal clear to the Jews. He's already talked about David and Abraham and Adam, and today he's going to talk about Moses and Pharaoh and Hosea and Isaiah. And so it's very obvious that Paul is definitely dealing with a lot of the issues that the Jews would be dealing with. And so many of those questions that are posted throughout Romans um, where Paul will make a, a matter-of-fact statement and then anticipate a question that would be asked, a theoretical question, those are coming from the Jewish mindset. And so understanding that is very helpful and noticing that Paul goes back and forth, back and forth throughout this whole Bible dealing with Jews and the Gentiles and that salvation is by faith. It's not by the works of the law. It's not through ceremony. It's not through circumcision. It's not through any of those things. It's by faith in Christ. And so recognizing that that's really what's happening in the theme of this book, this is important to know, the theme of this book is God's righteousness. God is righteous, and we have to give an account to a righteous God as people who are not righteous. And so that's, that's important, and that puts us in a very um, dangerous place, recognizing that we have to answer to a holy God, and we ourselves are not holy, right? But this is also God's righteousness given to us. God's righteousness is a gift, and that's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. So God's righteousness and God's righteousness gifted to us, given to us, imputed to us. That's, that's really kind of the idea of the, the whole book of Romans. So Paul's been going back and forth dealing with that issue, and then he lands in chapter 8, and through that whole chapter he's talking about all of these wonderful blessings that, are, that is ours in Christ Jesus. Um, up to that point... Excuse me, uh, the Holy Spirit was only mentioned twice, and then in Romans 8, 20 times. 20 times Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about the glorious blessings and privileges and promises that are ours as sons and daughters of God through the Holy Spirit. Not only have we been forgiven, we've been adopted. Adopted into the family of God. God could have just said, you know what, you're forgiven, but that's it, I'm done. He didn't do that. He forgave us and then invited us into His family. And we enjoy so many blessings and privileges as children of God. And then all of a sudden, as you get into chapter 9, it takes a very bizarre shift. A very random and abrupt turn, it would seem. 9, 10, and 11, those three chapters, they really go together. And it's important to study them together. So if you're reading... Read ahead to chapter 10 and 11 and understand that those three chapters are very cohesive. It almost seems as if Paul could have gone straight from chapter 8 into chapter 12 and it would have, been, uh, it would have tied together so beautifully. And so for years I've kind of wondered about that, but I, I think it, it really occurred to me this time around just how it fits, just how it, it connects. And so Paul talks about these wonderful blessings that are ours in Christ, and then in chapter 9, verse 1, he shifts and he begins to talk about the Jews and how he wishes that they too were partakers and recipients of these blessings, but that they're not. But then he goes on to say that he understands God's purpose in this, that through their rejection, through Israel's rejection of their Messiah, we would be the recipients, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, would be the recipients of salvation. And that God would 
end up using that to provoke the Jews to jealousy when they see that the favor, the grace, the salvation of God has gone to the Gentiles. And then when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, when that time comes when, when God is ready to turn His attention back onto the, the Jews, there would be this great restoration of the Jewish people. And then Paul launches off into this, this glorious praise where he talks about it, God's mind, is, it, we, it's unsearchable. We can't understand or, or know the, the deepness of the riches of the mysteries of God. And then he goes into Romans 12 and it, it gets very practical. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with in a nutshell here with chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's important to understand that. That helps us. We need that lens when we're looking especially at chapter 9. But that's what Paul is ultimately dealing with here. That there was a time that the Jews have been hardened, if you will, blinded to the Gospel, so that through their rejection the Gentiles would be ushered in and that we would receive salvation. But God's not done. He will restore Israel. And a lot of people in the church differ on that. They don't believe that God is going to restore Israel, that God is done with Israel, and that the the church has inherited all the promises to Israel. That's sometimes referred to as replacement theology, that the church is spiritual Israel. And so we don't believe that, um, and I won't get too deep into that, but that's just another way in which there's great difference of opinion and understanding in these chapters. So kind of having said all of that, let's go ahead and get into it. So that was a very long framing and introduction to this chapter, but it's helpful. All right, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So if you'll recall at the very end of chapter 8, Paul said this, chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, and here it is, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I talked about our security, our stability, our assurance. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? And I believe this is kind of the transition point. And so then you get into verse 1 of 9. It's as if Paul says, nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but I could wish myself separated from Christ if that meant salvation for the Jews, for my brothers, for my countrymen. That's kind of the, the, the transition there. That, that's a true burden, by the way. To, to pray or to wish that you could be cut off from God so that others could be saved. Now, it doesn't work that way, but I mean, that is a deep, intense burden. And I think in a lot of ways, that is the heart of God. I mean, that is sacrificial love and concern. And so I think it, we would do well, guys, to pray. God, give us a broken heart like that. 
Give us a broken heart for our family. Give us a broken heart for our community. A broken heart for our church and the people in our church who don't know You. And that we would be gripped to the very core with this kind of love that one could say, I can wish myself cut off from the blessings and the promises of God if it meant salvation for them. That is, that's heavy, that's deep, that's intense. And so Paul says, you know, these are my brothers. These are my countrymen. These are my fellow Israelites. And he describes them as people who have been adopted. And we, we often refer to them as the chosen people of God, Israel. They enjoy special privileges such as the glory of God. They got to see the glory of God in ways that we'll never get to see this side of heaven. When they were in the wilderness and, and God uh, led them by night in a pillar of fire and then obviously His presence there in the temple, the very glory of God, they got to see that. To them was given the covenants, the promises of Abraham and David and Noah. They received the law. They received the temple service rites, all of the promises, the fathers, the patriarchs. And above all, the Christ Himself, the Messiah, would come through the nation of Israel. They were a blessed people. So very blessed of God. But it seems as though they've rejected the promises of God. It seems as though they've rejected the very purpose and plan of God by rejecting God's Christ. By rejecting His Messiah. So that, that leads Paul to this question. And this question right here in verse 6 I think is central for what's getting ready to happen. So verse 6, Paul says, but it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. So basically, they could say, well, since they didn't believe, since they didn't obey, does that mean God's Word has failed? Does that mean God's Word is of no effect? Paul says, absolutely not. He says, it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. It's a difficult language here, the way Paul writes this, this stuff. And it's dense and it can be confusing. But basically what he's saying here is that God's Word has not fallen to the ground. We on? Hey, God's in control. God's sovereign. He knew that was going to happen. So, at any rate, Paul says, look, not all of Israel is Israel. God had made very specific promises to Abraham. And He said that uh, Sarah was going to have this child, this child of promise. 
Well, you remember what Abraham did? Well, it was really Sarai's idea. She said, look, you know, I'm old. Why don't we just do this? And she gave her maidservant to Abraham, Hagar, and they had a child together, and uh, his name was Ishmael. So right out the gate, there's this issue. And God says, it's not going to be through Ishmael. It's not going to be by Hagar. The promise that I gave to you was through Sarah. She is going to be the one through whom the child comes. And so what we see here is God's commitment. That's something I'm going to keep pointing out as we go. Kind of the heart of the issue here. God is committed. God is committed to a number of things. And first off here, we see that God is committed to His own faithfulness. God made a promise. God made a promise to Abraham. And we're going to see that God is going to keep that promise. God is committed to His own glory, which we talked about. We'll talk about that again. But God is committed to His own faithfulness. And that's important for us, guys. We need to recognize that. You can count on God. You can trust God. You don't ever have to doubt God. You can rest. You can rest in the promises of God and the faithfulness of God because God is committed even to His own faithfulness. He said that I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be faithful. And even if everyone else is faithless, I remain faithful. Let every man be a liar, but God be truth. Amen? And so that's what we're going to start seeing here. This is the idea. God is faithful. His Word will never fall to the ground. And He's going to get the job done because His very name is on the line. His very name is at stake. And so here, God is committed. God is faithful. And this promise here was not just a blanket promise. It was a very specific promise. And Paul begins to make that distinction. So he says not all of Israel is Israel. And he starts out by talking about not even all the children of Abraham are the recipients of the promise. Not all of the children. Only one, Isaac. Because you'll recall that uh, even after Sarah died, Abraham remarried a woman named Keturah and she had sons from Abraham. They weren't children of the promise either. They were not the seed that God talks about here. And so... Thirdly, not all of Isaac's descendants were children either. So Isaac was the child of promise, right? You know the story that finally uh, God did bless and that Sarah did conceive and she gave uh, birth to Isaac, the child of promise. But he wasn't the only one either. Um, there, were, there was uh, uh, other children involved through Isaac and Rebekah. So that, that takes us on to Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. So, verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purposes of God, according to election, might stand. So there's that, there's that word. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so now Paul is using this extreme example of God's faithfulness to his own promises. And he says that it was according to God's election because God chose Jacob to be the child of promise and he was not the firstborn. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac and Rebekah. And so he should have been the one who had the birthright and the blessings and the promises. But before they were even born, God had already determined 
that Jacob was going to be the one. That it was going to come through Jacob. And it says that it might be according to God's election. And so, what it's talking about here, it goes back to Genesis 25, verse 23. And so, Rebekah was pregnant. There was something going on. There was some kind of complication. And she sought the Lord, what is going on? And He said this, And the Lord said to her, There are two nations in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So she had twins. God revealed that to her. And there was some sort of strife happening between them even in the womb. And these would be the fathers of nations. And so Israel would come from Jacob, and the Edomites would come from Esau, and there would be strife between those nations, as God is saying here. But there was certainly strife between the brothers. And so this is taken up again in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. They're referenced again. And God is talking to the people of Israel, and He says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains, and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So God tells the Israelites, look, I have loved you. And it's as if they're, they're challenging or questioning him and saying, how, how have you loved us? You say you've loved us. How have you done that? And God says, did I not say that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? Well, they were the descendants of Jacob. And God had given preferential treatment to Jacob from the very beginning. And even throughout the course of those nations coming to be, both the Israelites and the Edomites had been taken out of the land, both determined that they were going to come back, and only one came back. Who was it? The Israelites. They came back to the land. And so God points to that and says, that is my love for you. I allowed your people to return back to the land. I did not allow Esau's descendants to come back. So we see that God was very much in control of all of this from the very beginning. This was all God's doing. This is God's... Co- Whoa. Okay. This is God's commitment to His own purpose. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And God is going to see to it that it happens. Don't you take comfort in that? I take great comfort in that. If that is your desire, that's the bigger question. Is it your desire that God's plan and God's purpose and God's will happens in your life? Because there are a lot of people who don't want that. They reject that. And there are Christians who don't really want that. They may not say that, but they're, they're awfully busy trying to do their own thing. They know what would look really good for them. And they're very busy trying to make that happen. Sometimes even angry at God that it isn't happening the way that they think it ought to happen. And I think we're all guilty of this. But God has a plan. God has a purpose. It's for His glory and it's for our best. And God is committed to that. Absolutely committed to that. We can count on that. We can trust that. We can rest in that. So God is committed to His own faithfulness. He made a promise to His people and it was going to happen. God is committed to His own purpose. God has a, a plan, a will, a desire, and He's going to bring that to pass. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Well, based on this, this idea here that, that God showed preferential treatment to Jacob over uh, Esau, he anticipates a question. 
Now, I just want to address the issue of Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. What's shocking here is not that God had said that He hated Esau. What's shocking is that God said He loved Jacob because there was nothing lovable about either one of them. And sometimes people get caught up on that. Wait, God hates? And God hates Esau? How can that be? Well, what's really surprising is that God had determined to love Jacob because Jacob was evenly unlovable. In fact, his name meant heel catcher, basically a, a scoundrel or a crook. And he lived up to that name in many ways. Yet God still put His love on him. God displayed and demonstrated true love, unconditional love, sacrificial love, electing love. And that's what we get, guys, when God demonstrates His love towards us. It's a love that God purposed to give to us. It's not because we are lovable people. You know that, right? It's not that we are so inherently deserving or worthy or lovely or lovable. God chose to put His love on us and to make us recipients of His love because God is love. And the good news about that is is that that does not change. Because if it was based upon our worthiness or our deserving it, what about on those days when we're not? What about those days when we're not so lovely and we're not so deserving? God's love remains. God's love is consistent. God's love is sure. It's true. That is God's electing love. Alright, so Paul anticipates that someone's going to say, that's not right. That's unfair. It's not right that God would choose Jacob over Esau before they were even born. You know? That makes sense to the human mind. We think like that. They didn't even have anything to say in the matter. They didn't have a choice. And God had already determined before that they were born how this was going to all go down. How can that be right? And so that's, that's the question that Paul anticipates. And that makes sense to our, our human mind, does it not? I think we all struggle with those kinds of questions. So verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? So does this make God unrighteous? Well, his response, certainly not. Remember, we talked about this earlier on in the book, those questions that Paul put out, and he would say, God forbid, may it never be, certainly not. It's, it's, it's almost like outrage. It's the strongest language you could possibly use here. And he says, absolutely not. There is no unrighteousness with God, ever. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So verse 15 For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So Paul's referencing Exodus here. A conversation between Moses and God. And he said of God, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is free to do that. So the account that he's referencing here, God had given instructions to Moses to go, and Moses said, I will not go unless your presence goes with me. Do you remember that? Does that ring a bell? I love that verse. And so God is going to honor that request. So verse, 33 of, uh, verse 17 of Exodus 33 says this, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So it wasn't because Moses was worthy or deserving, but because God had grace on Moses. Moses wasn't such a desirable guy either. 
verse 18. And he said, please, Moses said, please show me your glory. Then he said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. So this idea of God having compassion and mercy, it's, this is an action, it's a verb. It's not, it's not something that God has. It's something that He exercises. There's not a, an English equivalent to this. It literally means I will compassion whom I will compassion and I will mercy whom I will mercy. And God determined and purposed that He was going to do this thing for Moses. He was going to demonstrate this grace towards him. And Paul's reference to this is that God has always been free. God has always been free in His sovereign initiatives regarding grace and compassion. God is not beholden to the one who wills or works. God is not dependent on us according to this text. God will show mercy if God wants to show mercy. God will show grace if He wants to show grace. Now that's referred to, and I'm kind of um, the more... um, there's two different sides to this idea, but one side says that it's dependent upon the person to respond or not. It's dependent upon the person to, to exercise faith or essentially give God the freedom to move. The other side is called free grace, and that is God has freedom to extend mercy and grace if He wants to. In fact, you can't even stop Him. And so God doesn't need your permission. God doesn't need your request. God doesn't need any of that. If for His divine purpose, He wants to, determines to exercise grace, He can do that. God is free. That is called free grace. Well, verse 17, now He's going to talk about the opposite side of that. It's, it's Pharaoh. So He already told Moses that He would have compassion and mercy. And now He talks about Pharaoh. Paul uses Pharaoh as an example. It says, verse 17, For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, <clears throat> and whom he wills, <clears throat> excuse me, he hardens. So God will have mercy on whom he wills, and God will harden whom he wills. And Pharaoh is an extreme example of this. God raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose. God hardened Pharaoh for this very purpose, that he could demonstrate his glory, his power, and his wrath in Egypt. And when God exercised all of those, those plagues, as he sent those forth, those, those actually spoke to the different kinds of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So God demonstrated the fact that he truly is the only God and he exercises complete and total authority over all men and even so-called gods. And God did that through Moses by hardening Moses' heart. And Moses said, Who is this God that I should serve or obey? I will not do it. And then God said, All right, here we go. I'm going to demonstrate my glory and my wrath. And God did that through Pharaoh. So God gave grace and mercy to Moses because he willed to do so. And God hardened Pharaoh because he willed to do so. So, Paul's going to anticipate another question. So, here's the next question in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? 
But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? For the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. So the question is, how can God hold someone responsible if it was out of their control? And again, this is another one of those questions that we often, I think, ask ourselves and are asked by other people. But it's interesting how Paul responds to it. He doesn't say, well, hey, you know, it's a mystery and we don't understand or, you know, man certainly has some part to play in this. He doesn't even go there. He just says God has the right to do what He will and there is what He wills and there's no, there's no uh, unrighteousness with Him. And in fact, God is the potter and we're the clay. And this is language that the Jews would have totally understood. This is right out of Jeremiah 18, verses 1-6. through 6. And the idea is God is the potter. God has the, the absolute power and right to make out of the clay what He wills and the clay cannot say to the potter, why have you made me this way? He has complete and, and total authority and control over the creation. He has that right. God is free to work. So verse 22, it says, What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy? which He had prepared beforehand for His glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So God has determined that He would put His wrath on display through Pharaoh. God has determined that He would show mercy on Moses. God is glorified in both wrath and mercy. And God is very concerned about His glory. Remember we talked about that last week at great length. That's ultimately what's going on here. God is glorious. He is worthy and deserving of glory. He's jealous for His glory and He deserves to be glorified in every possible way imaginable. And so God is glorified through wrath and God is glorified through mercy. Remember back when I talked about the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 18? And I did a standalone message on that and talked about Wrath is a very real part of who God is. It's an extension of His holiness. The mere fact that He is perfectly pure and holy and righteous, He has to be a God of wrath. He has to execute judgment and punishment on that which is wrong. And God is glorified in so doing. And, and consider an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, loving God who is indifferent to sin who didn't really care, wasn't really affected by evil or wickedness or, or wrongdoing. That, that would be a terrible thing to even think of, and that's simply not the case. Because God is holy, because God is righteous, because He is a just judge, He must be a God of wrath. And He is glorified when His wrath is poured out. He is glorified because it exalts His holiness. But God has also determined that He was going to put His mercy on display. God is greatly exalted and glorified when He exercises grace and mercy and forgiveness. Amen? And I would say, in a big way, this is what God has been up to from before time began. You know, God didn't create all things good and then it went bad and then God said, oh man, I didn't see that coming. What do I do now? 
plan B. I'm going to come up with this plan of redemption through my son. That's not at all what was happening. We're told that, that before time began, God had already predestined us to adoption. And so God had something going on in His mind before all of this. And I, and I would submit to you, and I, this is kind of lofty thought and holy speculation a little bit, and I think there's scriptural precedent for it, but I think God had already determined that He was going to deliver to His Son a church, an innumerable body of people who have been saved by Jesus who are uniquely qualified to love Him and praise Him and adore Him for His qualities of grace and mercy. The angels were not qualified. They weren't fallen and redeemed. And He is truly merciful and gracious, which makes us uniquely qualified to worship Him as such since we have been fallen and redeemed through Christ. And this was a gift from the Father to the Son. And that's why Jesus says that any that the Father gives to Me, I will by no means cast out. Why would He? It's a love gift from the Father. And it's a gift that Jesus loves intensely because His church, me, you, His people, He purchased with His own blood. Acts 20 talks about that very thing. And this is what Jesus is about. Jesus, we are His bride. Paul talks about that in Ephesians. We are His bride that He has called to Himself and He is making His bride beautiful and glorious and spotless and will present her as such in that day, on that day when we are glorified before Him. And Jesus is building His church. Jesus is building His church on the inside. Each and every one of His believers, He is committed to our, our love and our growth. But He's also building His church numerically. In every generation, in every nation, tribe and tongue, the church is there and it is qualified to worship Jesus. Qualified, uniquely qualified. And so this is one major way in which God is putting His mercy on display through the church that He has purchased by the blood of His own Son and will one day deliver to Him in glory in heaven and we will worship and praise Him forever and ever. This is God's commitment to His own glory. God is committed to His own glory. He's glorified through wrath. He's glorified through mercy. As He reveals Himself, as He reveals His plans, as He demonstrates his nature, his character, his attributes, whether it's wrath or mercy, God is glorified. And what does this produce in us? It produces worship, love, gratitude, obedience, service, and astonishment at this amazing God. This incredible, amazing God whose ways are not our ways, whose ways are above our ways. Well, Paul continues on. In verse 25, and he's going to reference Hosea as an example of God's commitment to His people and the preservation of His people. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them My people who are not My people and her beloved who is not My beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not My people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. This is a really fascinating story. In Hosea, it's kind of a graphic story, but God actually calls a prophet to, to marry a prostitute, knowing that she is going to commit great infidelity against him. And Hosea is going to go back time and time again and take her back to himself. And this would be a very graphic picture of how God had redeemed his own people, yet they would turn away from him 
and spiritual infidelity and worship other gods over and over again, but he would constantly take them back and take them back. And here where it says, I will call a people who are not my people beloved, and they will be my people. That's literally one of the... When Hosea took this, this wife to himself and she began to have children out of wedlock, and they were given names. No mercy was one of the names, and another one was not my people. I mean, it was really unfortunate, but very telling of the people of Israel. But then God says, you know what? The people who are not my people, they're going to be my people. And the people who, who had no mercy, I'm going to show mercy. And that's the idea, and that's what Paul is quoting here. So the idea is God will restore an unfaithful people to Himself because of His promises, because of His covenant faithfulness. And God demonstrated unconditional electing love on the adulterous Israelites. This was God's love that He determined that He was going to display and pour out on them based on His own faithfulness. And so this is God's commitment. Here's another one. God's commitment to love His own people. God's commitment to love His own people regardless of their own worth or uh, unworth even. And so this is an unconditional love, guys. Unconditional. They didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. What, what surprises me is not just that God saved me, and I thank God for that, but that He forbears with me. That even now as a believer who has the Holy Spirit, who understands the things of God so much more than I ever have, I continue to struggle at times and I continue to fall short and God continues to love me. It's not that He just loved me in my ignorance and says, now you have no excuse. You know the truth. And so, you know, how dare you mess up? No, He loves me all the more. It's God's unconditional love. It's a preserving love. He's going to see me to the end. He did not let go. He would not let go. He will not let go. His name, His glory, His faithfulness, His love is all on the line. This is a preserving and a keeping love. And it's a sacrificial love. It's a love that came at a cost. It broke His heart, grieved His heart deeply. And ultimately, it was a love that would be demonstrated through the giving of His Son. That is the highest price. The highest price that could be paid when talking about sacrificial love. So, moving on, verse 27 Now he's going to talk about Isaiah. So Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So this is a very simple illustration. Those, though the Israelites were innumerable, at the end only a remnant would be preserved. Only a remnant would be saved. Because none of them deserved it. And even the fact that some made it to the end, that was incredible mercy on God's part. That was purely by the mercy of God that any of them made it. God saw to it that a remnant would stay. And this is, as I said, God's commitment to save people. Did you know God is committed to save people? I think we know that by the very fact that we ourselves are saved and we see what God is doing around us. And so look, guys, God's sovereignty, God's election ought to give us all the confidence in the world to pray with boldness because God is able, God is strong, God is in control, God is sovereign, and God has determined He's going to save people. 
God is going to save people. He's a saving God. He is mighty to save. And so we can pray with that kind of boldness. God, glorify Yourself. God, save that person. Demonstrate Your mercy through bringing this person to faith in Christ by snatching them out of the fire, as it were, by taking them out of the pit and setting their feet on the rock. This is a strong reason to evangelize. This is a strong reason to evangelize because we know God is moving and God is saving. And God uses us in the process. Isn't that amazing? Again, it's not that God needs us, but it's that God has desired, God has purposed that He will use us. And we get to be a part of that. And so knowing that there's a strong confidence in prayer and reaching out to people with the Gospel, a strong reason to support missions because God is saving people all around the world. God is saving people in every generation and every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we want to be a part of that here locally and around the globe. And so that's a strong reason to be involved in praying and outreaching and missions. And that's what we as a body of believers here try to be about. Alright, verse 30. Kind of closing it uh, with this, uh, with the rest of the chapter and some closing thoughts. So what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. <clears throat> so basically, he's, he's, there's this contrast here. You have the, the Gentiles who really weren't seeking after God. They weren't trying to keep the law, and they found salvation through faith. But then you have the Jews who were trying to get it on their own. They were trying to keep the law. Remember, we talked about this. The law is a curse. You can't get saved by keeping the law. So the Jews did not find salvation. And it comes through faith in Christ alone, not the keeping of the law. This was a stumbling block to the Jews. They could not handle this. It has to be through good works. It has to be through the ceremonial observances. It has to be through the law of Moses. They could not do it. And that is the case for so many people even now. It's really just that easy. It's really faith in Christ. That's it. We, can't, we just can't deal with that. We, there has to be something that we can do. There has to be some kind of work that we can do. And so man's propensity towards legalism, it's that kind of transaction, it's always been there. But it's by faith. It's through faith, not the law. And you know what, guys? This is God's commitment to His own Son. God's commitment to His own Son. It's not by works of the law apart from Christ so that you can boast and how good you are or what you've done or, or me either. It's all by Christ. And God saw to it it was going to be that way. It was not going to be through our ability. It was going to be through Christ's ability to save us. And so God's commitment to His Son. Salvation has come by Jesus. Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross. Jesus came as the Son of God in flesh, lived a life that we could not live, a life of perfection, a life of humble obedience and service to the Father and perfection, and then He died the death that we all deserve. He suffered the wrath on the cross that we deserved. He did that in our place. And then He rose from the grave and He conquered death and He conquered sin on our behalf through the resurrection. 
He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And if you believe on the name of Jesus, if you put your trust in Him to do for you what you can't do for yourself, that is the good news. You will be saved. You will be born again. You will have a relationship with the Heavenly Father here and now, and you will have that eternal hope that you will be with Him forever in glory and paradise. That is the good news of the Gospel. That's the only way. That's the only way. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. God is committed to that by His Son. It's only through His Son, and ultimately, it's for His Son. It's for His Son. It's for the glory of His Son. Jesus did what He did for the joy that was set before Him. It was for Him. And whoever believes on Jesus will not be put to shame. It's a stumbling block for the Jews. It's a trip hazard for the person who thinks that they can get in on their own. It's a trip hazard for the person who thinks that they got it all figured out and that they're going to make a way. But it is salvation for the one who puts their trust in Jesus, who puts their faith in Him. And we're told here, whoever believes on Jesus will not be put to shame. You will, you know, the idea is there, there is that you bought the lie, you got duped, you got conned, and now you're embarrassed or ashamed. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. You will never be put to shame. You will never regret that. You will never be embarrassed or feel like you fell for the con because in Him is truth. In Him is life. There is no other way. He is the way. And if you haven't put your trust in Him today, please, by the mercies of God, put your trust in Jesus for salvation. Choose life. Live. Put your faith in Jesus Christ who died in your place so that you would not have to suffer wrath and you would have everlasting life. Amen. And there's no greater life than the life that is found in Him. Amen. Amen. Well, we went over a little bit today, so I'm just going to pray and, and we'll close uh, right here. Father, we love You and we thank You, God, that You're committed. We thank You that You are committed to Your glory, committed to Your faithfulness, committed to Your purposes, committed to Your people, committed to Your Son. And we are recipients of all of that. Thank You, God. Thank You for what You are doing in our lives. Thank You for what You're going to do. And thank You, Lord, for inviting us in. And we love You. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Alright, guys. Be blessed.